Okay, I want to invite you to find the end of Luke chapter 7 um, in the copy of the Bible that you have with you. Luke 7, and you're looking for verse 36. This is uh, the last of the four encounters that Jesus has um, with individuals in Luke chapter 7. We've been uh, categorizing Luke chapter 7 under the banner of the four encounters. So uh, the first one is with the outsider. That was the centurion who had a servant that was sick and needed to be healed. We had um, Jesus' encounter with uh, the grieving, the widow of Nain who lost her son. We had his encounter with the questioning. We talked about that last week, John the Baptist. And in this final section of Luke 7, we see Jesus encountering uh, the sinful. So the outsider, the grieving, the questioning, and now the sinful. And as we have watched Jesus encounter each of these individuals, we understand that there's a lot to learn for ourselves here and a lot to enjoy in what we see in Jesus. And so um, that's certainly the case today. Much to learn, much to enjoy. All right? Let's read the text first. We'll begin in verse 36. Read all the way through the the end of chapter 7. Then we'll um, ask for the Lord's help and we'll get going, okay? If you're able to stand this morning, I invite you to stand for the reading of the word. This is Luke 7, beginning in verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment and standing behind him at his feet, weeping. She began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which one of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. 
Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And now, Father, we ask that you would take uh, such a beautiful scene and apply it to our hearts according to the purpose of the Holy Spirit who inspired the record of these things, the true record of true events on that day, that we could profit from them today. And so I pray that you would supply the power. I ask that it would happen according to your purpose. For a real change of heart among your people that's been a long time coming. I pray that you'd start with me. And I pray that the result of all these things today would be an overwhelming love for Jesus that might someday even approach what we see from this woman. We love you, Father, and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, obviously there's a lot here, but we're going to limit ourselves to two main ideas We're going to limit ourselves to just these two main ideas, what we learn about God and what we learn about ourselves. And if you've got um, the outline, if you're looking at that, that's in the bulletin, then you'll see that um, that's how I've sketched out what we're going to do today. Very simply, what we learn about God here and what we learn about ourselves. And I didn't choose those two ideas at random. I, I really do think that these represent the two main points that Jesus intends to get across to us to the people at the table, and and to us, okay? So these are the two main things. We'll start with what we learn about God, and the thing we learn about um, God is the thing that pleases him. We learn that the thing that pleases God is faith in his son, Jesus. Verse 50, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. The thing that pleases God, understand, the thing that pleases God is faith in his son, Jesus. Now, if you have been around church for a long time, that is, that is such a basic statement that I think we're, and I'm in this boat too, we're all very inclined to say, why do we need to spend any time talking about that? That's Christianity 101. I learned that as a six-year-old in vacation Bible school. The reason that we have to spend time on it, besides the fact that it's so beautiful, is that it's still so misunderstood. So many people, both outside the church and inside the church, still think that the thing that puts us in God's good graces is good behavior. 
We think that God is pleased with us if we live a good life, if we give some money, maybe even a lot of money. We do helpful things for people. You know, we compare ourselves to a woman like the woman in this passage, and we sit here and think, well, I certainly haven't done anything as bad as her. I'm a pretty good person compared with her, and God is pleased with my life. And if that's your assessment of yourself, that I'm a pretty good person, please notice that that is the position of the Pharisee named Simon in this passage at this table. He sits there comparing himself to this woman. He thinks he's better than her, but he's the one that receives the rebuke from Jesus. And it's the prostitute that's commended. It's the prostitute that leaves with the assurance that she has been saved. And he receives nothing, nothing but a correction, a correction to his thinking. What's the correction? It's faith in Jesus that pleases God, not a good life. Maybe you are very aware that you do not have a good life to offer to God. That is an awareness that may keep a lot of people away from God. Just the thought, I've done so many bad things, I've been such a bad person, I'm such a sinful person that I cannot approach God. If that's you, if that's your mindset, please notice and please understand that this woman who we're looking at had no good life to offer to God. She didn't have a good life to offer to God. And even if she did have one, it would not have earned her the approval of Jesus. The thing that saved her was her faith in Jesus. Please understand who Jesus is. Jesus is God, the second person, who took a body. The the church language for that, the biblical language, is that he became incarnate. He took a body, became man, to offer to God a good life. He took a body to offer to God a good life, a truly good life, a fully good life, free of any sin, any shortcoming, a perfectly pure life that cannot be improved upon. He offered that good life to God for you. In your place. And if you will permit me, here is where you may have fallen short in your understanding regarding what God requires of a person. This is where the connection just may have never been made in your mind regarding a good life and who Jesus is. Understand, God's standard for a good life is so high that you could never possibly meet it. Maybe you simply haven't understood what God's standard is for a good life. His standard is perfection. And if you could see him, 
with your eyes, you would understand why. If you could see him in his glory and his majesty, you would immediately understand, I can't be near him. I would have to be perfect in order to be near him. And that's true. But because none of us can meet that standard, because everyone is condemned and no one can be perfect, God in love sent his son, Jesus. His son took a body and lived that perfect life that God does require, lived it out, actually did it in the flesh. And now Jesus, the one who did that, freely gives his righteousness, the righteousness that he earned by his good life. He freely gives that righteousness to anyone who goes to him and asks for it. It's free. And if it's not irreverent to say it, the Christian gospel is a scandal of grace because a prostitute goes home in peace and saved. Not because she's lived a meritorious life, simply because she has placed her faith in Jesus. In fact, it's almost an advantage to her that she didn't have a meritorious life to offer. Because if she did, she may have been tempted to rely on that life to put her in the good graces of Jesus. She would be under the false pretense that God would be pleased with her because of her life. That's Simon's problem. He is under the false notion that God is pleased with him and very displeased with this woman. And therefore, Jesus has something to say to him. And I have something to say to you. If you are carrying with you this notion that God is pleased or could be pleased with your goodness, the only thing that can save you is an awareness of your own sin an understanding of your inability to ever meet the standard that God has set for a good life and a simple reliance on the person of Jesus Christ and an acceptance of his righteousness instead of your own. That's what the cross means. He takes your sin and he gives you his righteousness. Now, you may be thinking, um, that's all well and good for people that actually believe that there is a God. You may be thinking, I, you know, I'm, I'm pretty certain that this is all an exercise in futility because there is no God out there who's keeping track of people's lives and watching to see who's good and who's not good and a God who's saving people and not saving other people. And if that represents your position and somehow you are listening to this today or have come into this room, maybe by the invitation of someone and you'd rather not be here because you don't believe that there is a God out there to be worshiped or spoken about. And what is this all about? You're pretty sure that this is all meaningless. I want to thank you for being here and just ask you to think about just this one question, okay? If there was a God, what would you want him to be like? Are you willing to entertain that question, that if there were to be a God, what would you want him to be like?
Would you want him to be like a human who's concerned about fairness and rewards good behavior and punishes bad behavior? Or would you want him to be unlike anything that we have ever seen or known or dreamed of, completely different from us in a good way? A God who knows our weakness and our inclination toward greed and pride and selfishness, but instead of punishing us for being nothing other than what we have to be and who we are, he decided to take the punishment himself. So he could be a just God who does punish wrongdoing. And that he could also be a merciful God who is able to forgive sinners. If that God existed, would that be a God that you could believe in? A God who commends a prostitute and rebukes a religious guy. Would a God like that be beautiful enough and a sufficient enough explanation for all of the beauty that we see around us in the natural world? I hope you'll entertain that question. While we're in this passage, I want to address one other group of people as well. It's a growing group of people. Some of you are aware of this growing group of people. This is a group, and I'll speak directly to you, a group you, you believe in God. You love God. You want to be near God. You love Jesus. You believe in Jesus. But the religious leaders that you have encountered and the religious leaders that you have been near to have not been helpful to you. And they have not been loving to you and they have not represented God well to you. And as a result, now there is this great distance between you and God that you wish wasn't there. And you're not quite sure what to do about it. I want to address you directly today because this, that dynamic that I just described is present here too in this scene that we're looking at. There is a religious leader at the table and he has been unhelpful to the woman. And even now in this scene, he would rather her not be there. What is his purpose in life and his calling as a religious leader? Remember, he's a religious leader. What is his purpose? purpose in life and what is his calling if not to care for people and bring people near to God? Isn't a shepherd supposed to care for the sheep? 
And I have two very good friends and several acquaintances who right now are very, very disappointed in their religious leaders, in their pastors, and for good reason. And they are at various stages of separating themselves from the church or at least distancing themselves from God, from pastors, from church involvement, from any kind of spiritual nourishment because of the pain. Because God has not been represented well to them or accurately in their church by their religious leaders. And they are living what they would probably call a very strange exile. And maybe you're there too. Maybe you just happen to be listening today or you're headed in that direction or maybe you know someone who's there. This group is large and this group is growing and one of the most alarming things is that the people who comprise this group are people who have done so much for the church in the past and love Jesus so much. Otherwise, it wouldn't be so painful for them because they care so much. And situations like this have always existed. Look, this is not a unique moment in history. The the issue is right now, the group is growing so quickly in our own country. And there are so many in that group and so many that I care about so much and that you care about so much and that you love and that frankly we are handicapped without that I have to take a moment and encourage them from this passage while we're here. What's the encouragement for them or for you if you're in that situation? Here it is, please. And I'm gonna say this as humbly as possible in recognizing that I know nothing about what you've experienced, but I wanna encourage you from this passage in this way. Please do not let the failures of men keep you from the feet of Jesus. Please do not let the presence at the table of a very flawed and ugly and poor representative of Christ, like me. Don't let the presence at the table of someone like that keep you from going to the table as well. And I just want to say, in particular, I am talking about the communion table as representative of the entirety of involvement with the church. The woman here shows a lot of courage, doesn't she? She is able to overcome the uncomfortable, anxiety-producing glare of the Pharisee in order to give herself to the worship of Jesus. She knows that Simon's going to be there, and she goes anyway because she knows that Jesus is there. We don't always get to choose who else is at the table. And that is both the difficulty and the glory of the table of Jesus because it means that none of us are excluded no matter how ugly we are and how poorly we represent God. 
that the table is open to both the prostitute and the very, very poor representative of God who's failed in his leadership. So if you're, if you're in this group, I love you. I want you to know that the, the person or the people that have been making church and spirituality difficult for you need the table of Christ and the mercy that is there just as much as you do. Some of us are at the table because we want to worship Jesus. Some of us are at the table because we need a lesson. That's true in this passage. And it will be true for me and for you always at different seasons of life. And Jesus gives the opportunity for both at this table. Someone gets to worship and someone gets a lesson. And that will always be the case when we join together because Jesus quite simply has chosen to dwell among sinners. And it will take courage to be in the presence of sinners at the table, but I would encourage you to go anyway. Go where Jesus is, no matter who else is there. And like this woman, we can choose to put all of our attention and all of our energy into Jesus. Let's give attention to one other thing. We've talked about what we learn about God, that he's pleased with faith in Jesus, um, that that's the basis upon which a person is saved. We've said a few other things as well in passing. Let's finish with what we learn about ourselves, okay? What we learn about God, what we learn about ourselves. Here's what we learn about ourselves, and this is really, this is the main thing. We see that there is a correlation in our lives between forgiveness and love. We want to observe by reading Jesus' little parable that there is a correlation between forgiveness from God and love for God. That's the connection that we need to see. That's the main point of his parable, that the one who is forgiven much loves God much, and the one who is forgiven little loves little. That's verse 47. And that plays out here in terms of what we see in the people. The woman knows that she is forgiven much and she's lavish in her love. The tears, the washing, the anointing. On the other hand, the Pharisee doesn't think there's much to be forgiven of in in his life. He's in pretty good shape, doesn't have a lot of sin to be forgiven. And so there's an astonishing lack of hospitality on his part. There's no water There's no kiss. There's no anointing representative of a a startling lack of care and lack of love for Jesus. There is a question that we have set before ourselves at Prairie Hill. Here's, Here's the question. How do we cultivate love for God? Love for God is the goal, the first and greatest commandment. That is the goal. Now, how do we cultivate love for God? Not just knowledge about God. Not just service for God. How do we cultivate love for God? We talked about that a few weeks ago. 
What we want is love for God in our heart, something approaching affection in our heart. Where does that come from? Is there a way to get it? Jesus tells us in this passage what gives birth to much love for God. He tells us, he gives us the pathway. Great love for God comes from a great awareness of how much God has forgiven us of. Are you interested in loving God more? Do you want that for yourself? I do. I am interested in that. I want to follow whatever path is set before us here that leads to a greater love for Christ. And this is the path that's set before us. Become increasingly aware of just how much God has forgiven you of. You know, there are two postures represented at this table in Luke 7. One person displays anxiety over the sins of others. One person displays brokenness over their own sin. Anxiety over the sins of others, brokenness over their own sin. The Pharisee is dwelling on this woman's sin. Look at who she is. Look at how depraved she is. Look at how sinful she is. I can't believe that Jesus would let her near him. He allowed her of all people to come in and get close to him. He's displaying all this anxiety over the sins of others. And this is what we have to understand as part of the church of Jesus. Broadly speaking, broadly speaking, not just this church, the church of Christ, broadly speaking, we are very anxious and very, very concerned about the sins of others. Most of our energy And many of the voices that we listen to are given to expressing concern and anxiety over the sins of those other people. Look how bad they are. There are people who make their living speaking into the lives of Christians. And that group includes pastors, and bloggers, and parachurch leaders, and writers, and talk show hosts, and pretty much anybody that has an internet connection. And they make their living feeding us on the sins of others. How concerned we should be about their sins, where their sins may lead, how bad their sins are, and our alarms are raised And as our alarms are raised, money is raised, and the cycle continues. And we get fed and fed and fed on the sins and the evil of the world. That's our diet. Now notice that there is an element of truth in that. There is sin in the world, and the sin of the world is evil. That's affirmed here in this passage. Jesus says, her sins, which are many, okay? No one's being soft on sin here or denying the presence of sin. Jesus names it and affirms it. The problem is that for the Pharisee, anxiety and concern 
over the sins of others has blinded him and kept him from brokenness over his own sin. And a lack of brokenness over his own sin has left him with little love or no love for Jesus. And that, I think, describes our impoverished condition very, very well. Especially here in the American church. We feed ourselves for so long on a diet of dwelling on the sin and brokenness in others, how much they need forgiveness, how much they need Jesus, and the result is a hollowed out heart, a dead heart, or an angry heart where there's very little love for God. We are left only with some traditions and some routines and a lot of pride in a very small heart and a very small desire for worship. We just offer a worship that arises from duty or routine and not love. It's a worship very unlike this woman in Luke 7. How much time do you spend pouring over articles and listening to discussions of the sins of others? And how does that compare to the time that you spend excavating and contemplating the sin in your own heart? confessing it to God and receiving the personal forgiveness of your sins. The reason I'm coming down so hard on this pharisaical condition is that I lived here for so long and I still visit this mindset way too often. I am way, way behind in love for God I'm playing catch-up, and I've been playing catch-up for a long time. You all are way ahead of me. Usually when I'm preaching, I'm just preaching to myself. And I'm looking at this own shriveled-up heart inside of me, asking the question, where is the love for God? How come when I come into this room and there's beautiful music, how come it's so difficult for me to enter into worship with a true affection for God? Maybe if I spent a little more time excavating the sin in my own heart, receiving the forgiveness and remembering the cost of forgiveness, maybe there would be a little brighter glow of love for Christ in my heart someday. So this is a really sad condition, but it's not a, it's not a hopeless condition. Jesus teaches here. He has something to say to us. He redirects our attention. Did you notice how he redirects the attention of the Pharisee? Do you see this woman? I don't know why I love that question so much. Of course he sees the woman, but he redirects his attention. Do you see this woman? Look, Christian, I'm talking to you now. Look at this woman. She loves Jesus so much. Do you want to be like her? Do you want to love Jesus much? How does it happen? She has this great awareness of her own sin and how much Jesus has forgiven her. She knows her own story. She's thinking about her own story. She doesn't care about Simon's sin. She doesn't care about anybody else's sin. She's thinking about hers. 
And what Jesus has done for her, she weeps for her own sin. And revival in your life and in the church at large will come when we give ourselves to brokenness over our own sin and astonishment at how much God has forgiven in you. You know, Simon was astonished that Jesus would let this woman get that close to him. You know what he should have been astonished at? He should have been astonished at verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him and he went into the Pharisee's house. That's such a great contrast to what we saw in the centurion. Do you remember the centurion back at verse six? Centurion said, no, 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 don't come into my house. I'm not worthy to have you under my roof. Do not come under my roof. I am not worthy of that. Jesus, you must stay outside my house. This guy acts like Jesus owes it to him to be under his roof. All of us should be astonished that God would condescend to dwell in me, in the blackness of my heart. How could it be that God would choose to make his dwelling in me? This heart that's still so hostile to his presence so much of the time and still opposed to his word. How could it be that Jesus would identify with me of all people? Christian, spend way more time excavating the sin in your own heart than listening to all those people talking about the sins of the world. And when confession overtakes aggression. And brokenness overtakes pride. Then love for God will overtake apathy. And the church will become a place where worship takes place. Not the worship of a system or a way of life the worship of a person, the Lord Jesus Christ, my personal Savior from my personal sins. Jesus teaches the correlation between forgiveness and love. Did you see this woman today? How wonderful it is that she got to be the teacher today. And all of us religious people are silenced and reflective and hopefully learning. I thank you, Father, for all the beauty we see here and how this table is open to even people like me people like us, so quick to condemn others. Ah, Jesus is so beautiful. Thank you for his willingness to receive the worship of the woman, and thank you for his willingness to continue to teach us, to to open his mouth and give a lesson to people like us who want to grow and want to grow in love. Let us be good soil today and receive it well in Jesus' name. Amen.